Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food, an adventure for all insatiably curious foodies everywhere. My name's Jay Taylor, I'll be your pilot for this adventure, along with our navigator and food fact finder, James Winter. Hello. And on today's show, we are going to be taking a trip back to the dinner table of Henry VIII to uncover lost food ideas and tips from the dinner plates of the king to discover what might be reinvented for today and what's best left in the past. Plus, we'll be inducting more items into our kitchen gadget hall of infamy and we'll also be trying to get to the bottom of where food trends come from. So without further ado, grab your finest ruffle tights and pantaloons in preparation for dinner with the Tudors. Hello, James. How are you, sir? I'm fine. I'm good. I was waiting for the harpsichord or whatever to kick in then. As our, <laughs> as our bed, our music bed. How are you, Jay? I'm very good myself. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'll try and get a harp bled, sort of sitting gently. Well, harpsichord. Uh, I was thinking harpsichord. A harpsichord would be good, wouldn't it? We could have someone, yes. yes, we could have one of those little um, some trumpeters or a to, blow, lute. to blow us in as well. I shouldn't say that's, that's an entirely different blowing us out. <laughs> now, we've had correspondence. As, as, as we spoke before about the sort of the coal is starting to come in uh, in Britain. Luckily, we've had some uh, nice messages coming in on Instagram from... Oh, by the way, we have a new Instagram handle for everyone out there. It's at Journey to the Centre of Food. Still go to the same place, but you can find us at Journey to the Centre of Food. So please do keep staying in touch. Uh, Morten Finsen has been in touch from nice. Norway, uh, which is always very exciting when we get people from abroad uh, writing in. And he's been talking. I was chatting to him on Instagram and... Um, I was asking him what what's traditional food out in Norway. I was just curious about what people would be eating out there, especially when you start to think cold things. You thought, you know, they know what they're doing. And he replied, I won't do the accent, Morton. I don't think that'll be particularly good. But he said traditional dishes from this area, uh, obviously seafood, like smoked herring, and that's been a hit since the Middle Ages. And then he says, uh, sheep in kale. Uh, and it's just Ooh. as it sounds. It's sheep boiled with water and kale, served with boiled potatoes. Pretty popular, although I'm not a fan myself. I like the idea of boiling mm. everything. Uh, yeah. Oh, and then, and then we have sheep's head. Clearly they have a sheep. Um, Komrul or rasbol. It is no, it's something foreigners don't normally enjoy, but it's actually quite nice. This is minced potato mixed with barley flour and wheat flour mixed to a snowball-sized ball and cooked with sausage and salt salted lamb meat and mm. served with kol, kolarabi stew. I think the gray, is that right? Is it karabi? I think the grey colour of the kolmi and maybe the consistency throws people a little bit. But that mm. sounds all right, doesn't it? It sounds like, a, yeah, it does sound like a kind of stew and dumplings. Well, that's it. Uh, there's a Norwegian uh, restaurant in London I went to a few times and it's that's it. It's sort of hearty winter mm. fare. And I you just don't think- see many Norwegian restaurants. I mean, that's quite a find in itself. I mean, you don't, you don't. I mean, until you just describe those dishes, I was reaching into my own mind to try and what, imagine what a Norwegian dish would be that's distinctive from Danish, Swedish, and all the Scandinavian countries to try and identify what would be truly Norwegian. I don't think I could. There's the so, very dark breads as well. I remember having that. There was a, there was mm-hmm. a bakery, like a Scandinavian bakery. And there was lots of very dark, heavy breads and pastries and things and cinnamon buns. Yes, I think it's just everything you need to get you through dark, cold. (laughs) (laughs) We must go there one day on an an exploration. But thank you for that, Morton. But we are not going to Scandinavia today. We're actually once again 
going back in time, but this time with some harpsichords. And that is because we have a fantastic uh, guest host on today. He was for 25 years the food historian for the Royal Palaces. He's a writer, broadcaster, and I think the country's finest and most entertaining food historian. Plus, he's a good friend and a wonderful chap called Mark Meltonville. Hello, Mark. Hello. How you doing? I'm doing very well, yes. I, I like that. That was a, a good intro. That was all right, wasn't it? We, we, we fully, fully <laughs> tooted your Tudor horn on that front. <laughs> and James obviously knows you as well. This is a, this is we, a have, we, have, we have met and worked together. I was just thinking, I think I surreptitiously met Mark in, in many years without Mark realising, because I once went to one of those wonderful days they hopefully one day will hold again, maybe they do, at Hampton Court, where they fire up the ovens and the kitchens mm. and just get people in there and start cooking cooking in the, 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 you know, the whole range of options at the Hampton Court Palace. And I, I believe, I didn't realise this at the time, but Mark would have been one of the, the, the sort of furious, probably in the pie station, <laughs> sort of pie, yeah. making a pie for, to, to, for everyone to look at. Well, the spits were turning. It was an extraordinary experience. If there's ever a chance anyone listening mm. is, is in the vicinity of Hampton Court and they're doing this, it's just, I mean, if you want to time travel into properly, it's, it's just wonderful. Yeah, those those uh, those days. Um, I'm not sure we have the money for that anymore. Um, they were quite wonderful, and uh, I'd love to have made pies. I I, I uh, would dream of working in the pie department, but I never <laughs> really got there. I spent an awful lot of time turning the spit, and it's very very important because if the spit doesn't turn, the meat burns. But I'm afraid your job is turn up, turn the handle. <laughs> That's literally Maybe where I met a... you. I met you turning the spit handle at Hampton Court Palace, just turning quite it. Quite a low skill base. <laughs> Are you turning? Yes, you're doing a good job. Are you turning? No turn the handle <laughs> well, that's what that's what separates you from a lot of other food historians is that alongside knowing all the history of food you're mm. also a really good cook so you know yeah. how to make it as well and you understand the difference between what tastes good and what tastes bad and the, the, and also you're fantastically good at interpreting the kind of the humanity behind the recipes and the people how did you get mm. into food history in the first place well, um, I hopefully that the background and the, that idea of bringing social history into the food history, which are one and the same, really, is because I started off as a, as a museum person. I started off as a, a, a minor curator. Uh, my training was in ceramic history, which I haven't really used or have I, because, of course, we eat off dishes. They're ceramics. We serve in ceramics. So I've sort of come full circle in that. Like many museum people, I got my first job in the entirely wrong museum uh, that's because there are many jobs going in museums. You, you come out all qualified to um, you know wow the world with the world of pots and uh, what happens is you get a job in a furniture museum and you have to completely retrain but although at first that might have seemed a bit oh okay fair enough i'll do that uh, what it did do was bring many things together mm. i studied all sorts of crafts i ended up working at a, one of these open-air museums full of old buildings where the blacksmith shop works and you can go and see people casting metal, shaping wood and so on. And you realise that everything is linked together. You can't have one thing without the other. You've got to build a house to live in a house. You have to build a kitchen. You have to build the pots and pans and so on. So it all starts linking. So I work in what's called long view history. And I'm very keen on the everything around it. And people, also, I, I got... Um, invited to, to, to join in exactly what you see. I got invited to come along and cook some Tudor food because they were a bit short of people. 
At that time, they were short of 20-somethings. Uh, I'm not anymore. As you said, it was 25 years ago. <laughs> and, um, and I said, no, thank you. I really, I'm, I'm fine. I've got my chairs and my bits of pot. I'm, I'm good, thanks. And uh, the, the chap who introduced himself as a food historian, I didn't think it was a real job, actually. And he said, uh, oh, come along. It'll be a bit of fun. It'll only be a week. And so here we are, 25 years later. <laughs> uh, I'm still studying food. And the reason that I studied food, drink, and dining is because it's about everything. I can talk about some ingredients in the next 10 minutes, but then we might go on to some etiquette. Then you might suggest an ingredient. I say, oh, no, we can't have that because of the politics of the world or the religions of the world or everything. Or we haven't explored there yet. You said, oh, did they like potatoes? Well, if they haven't got to America, the answer is they've got them yet. And so, so just everything links together. And because of that, my job is never the same two months running. And that's why I'm still here. Something Mark said to me ages ago, well, I think we were having lunch somewhere or something, but for the chime with me, but the, the history, the challenge of the historian is to, is for, it's about people, right? History is about people. Artifacts and buildings and, and as you're saying, the old sort of, you know, um, uh, I don't know, whatever these old old buildings in these in sort of these, these museums are, are great, but unless you put people in them, they don't come alive. And, and where these museums really work, these open-air museums, I've got one near me, Chilton Open Air Museum, which is a wonderful place. When they come alive, like the, the story I was saying in Hampton Court, it's when you put people back in them and you start to see them and you start to realise, I think you said it to me, Mark, actually, that every generation of man, whatever many millions of years we go back, is always the most modern-thinking human being on the planet. And so mm. they don't think of themselves as being fuddy-duddy, you know, old people from the past. These are modern-thinking, modern-viewed, you know, individuals using the most cutting-edge technology available to them at the time. And, and, and when you look at it from that perspective, you start to really history takes a different dimension it just becomes something else becomes alive and you start to start to think about what these people were thinking and and feeling and and food is exactly the center of all of that it's the one place where people are absolutely present every day in some capacity round a table round a fire round a forge round a whatever you know a pie you know table they're coming together and it's just wonderful that's when it really comes alive and food carries that for me that sort of resonant memory of, of all the people that have, have had a go at this different recipe different technique different you know, food items for centuries and so when, when Mark articulates it, which he will do shortly when I stop talking so well, you suddenly start to hear and feel these people come alive. Yeah, I mean, that that's in essence what I always say to any of the groups that I teach is that uh, no one has ever lived in the past, exactly what you've said. And the other thing we like to point out is the one thing that history teaches us is very little changes. So whatever the three of us sat here are like, if one of us is lazier than the rest, if one of them That's passionate Jay. about... Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, fine. <laughs> if one of them's passionate Great. about football, if one of them loves sports, all, the, all these things are just you then. Whatever was going on, when there's a job to do, the lazy one's not there. There's somebody always helping out everybody. They're just the same people as us. Um, we don't have that many generations to go back. Mm. I was stood outside the Tower of London once with a group of American students and they were having a little bit of trouble with the White Tower, a thousand years old. <laughs> What's a thousand years? Well, we counted back until I got to the 29th student. There was only about 32. There's 29 students. So they are. That's about 29 generations. You're a Norman. That's it. Wow. That's a shorter queue than somewhere waiting for a restaurant. Now, I just want to pause here quickly to introduce you to a new sponsor of ours who I think you might be really interested in. 
Did you know that one in four of us suffer from gut health issues like IBS, abdominal pain, gas and bloating? I think we can all agree we've had those, especially during the stress of the past few years. And it's one of those things you think that there is no solution to and actually you just need to take a slug of tonic water and push through it. Well, actually, that's not true. Gut health is vital to our general health and wellness. And did you know that 70% of our immune system is in our gut? It helps fight viruses and other illnesses, which we know are flying around us at the moment. The gut's also linked to mental health, and it's linked to improving sports performance and our general well-being. The good news is, if you have any gut health issues or are just looking to optimise your gut health, our new sponsor, Sons, have a product for you. Sun's Live Bacterial Supplement is clinically proven to treat digestive troubles and improve your gut health. What does it do? Well, it binds with the lining of your gut, strengthening the gut wall and making it better able to deal with what's thrown at it. It's backed up by over 50 clinical trials, making it one of the most studied bacterias in the world. Some of the stats from the trials are pretty impressive too. It was effective in helping 8 out of 10 men with their gut issues in just one study. So, what's your gut saying now? You can check this product out at suns.co.uk and the good news is you can use the code JOURNEY30, so J-O-U-R-N-E-Y 30, JOURNEY30, to get £30 off your first order and get your gut into healthy condition. Now, Mark, we have... We're lucky we have a lot of chefs listening, uh, chopping away, chopping their onions in the kitchen. And, and obviously, this podcast is entirely designed for curious foodies everywhere. But everyone's always interested in looking for <laughs> tips, ideas, tricks from different places. And we thought it would be wonderful for you to take us on a journey back to the Tudor times to see if there's anything from there we can mm-hmm. relearn for today. So to begin with, talk to us about dining in the Tudor times and specifically in the world of Henry VIII, because we don't want to go and have any of that peasant food. We want to go proper. We're going to go to the top level here. Let's go in with the big boy. So set the scene, picture the scene. What was going on? Well, luckily for you, uh, nobody writes cookbooks for peasants. So all we've got (laughs) is the royal cookbooks. And um, there are, every century you go back, there are less and less books. Part of that is time. Part of that is they didn't print so much. They weren't around. But we get the first printed cookbooks. There's uh, a handful for the 16th century, which is the time of Henry VIII. Um, there's about two, just about three, come out within his lifespan. Uh, they are written, as I say, for very, very wealthy tables. So we can pull out the dishes from those and go, okay, this is the sort of thing that they would have been eating. Now, I have a lot of problems when people sit me down and go, tell me something really wacky, <laughs> Henry VIII ate. And we can come to some of the wacky stuff in a bit. But the problem is that good food is good food. And so once you find out that something's really nice, not a lot changes with it. They like their fish. We like fish. They like their fish cooked quickly so it's not overdone with butter poured over it because that's good. (laughs) And once you've worked out that that is good, it doesn't change. They liked apple pies. Apple pies are apples cooked down with sugar and cinnamon. We'll come to how exotic that was in a moment. With a little bit of pastry on top, baked in an oven, it's nice. <laughs> so we have a lot of problems with dishes from the past. When someone says, no, well, what was Henry VIII's you know, most common meal? And when the king walked into this chamber that he sat down at, he tended to dine alone. So he's got a whole laid table for himself. He's got all these people watching him. It's very important that they watch him. Why? Dining in state is a well, you what do we have to keep an eye on? We have TV, we have social media, we have the internet. 
everyone still wants to know everything about everybody. They want to know about the celebrities, and the king is the top celebrity. So people are watching him all the time. He dines in public two or three times a week, and everyone's gossiping. Words going out saying, oh, didn't look so good today. Looked a bit peaky. He's really? been wearing that. Yeah. He's, he's like TV wearing... of the day. Yeah. He's been wearing that hat three times now. Can't he afford a new hat? Where's the government money going? It's all about mm. being seen and being seen to eat well. So he gets to slap in there, sit down. There's all these people watching. What makes his meal special? Well, we have to unpick the things that are difficult to get in each era are always the luxuries. So we're after the things today that are a little bit special. In fact, a lot of our life is spent, uh, if you're into food, looking for fine dining because it's the things you could cook but possibly don't have the skills, the techniques, the equipment to bring them together in that absolutely amazing way. So that's why we go to a restaurant. I mean, I, you, know, you, can get, you can do the sorts of things, but it's not quite the same. Mm. What's a luxury in the past? It's not just Henry VIII, but most of the time, the luxury in the past is I have enough food. Because <laughs> for most people, <laughs> for Just most food basically is a luxury. Food. For most people, you're going to sit down. Sorry about this, uh, James. We're going to do a little bit of peasant here. You're going to sit down in your house. There'll be some bread, cheese, a stew on the table. It's the same as last night. It's the same as tomorrow. There's no choice. There's no choosing. It doesn't come from very far away. You eat it. So the moment you sit down at a wealthy table, a royal table, the first thing you would notice if you're one of these people getting is wow there's too much to eat ah. he can choose there's a roast chicken there's some roast beef there's a leg of mutton there's some pies there's some, all spread out in what we think of as a buffet mm. and he gets to help himself and leave half of it because he's that rich he can sit down and it's the way i liken it is uh if we go to a restaurant that maybe one we like and use quite a lot and you might have a favorite dish but when you sit down there's a special on and you think oh oh i thought of that there you get that little momentary luxury from the past i wasn't going to have that but i've just decided to and so what, would, all, would all the food be laid out for him when he walked in would everything be available to choose from or would there be some element of of order and change well this is where it gets complicated because Sorry. they talk about courses and so do we, but we don't mean the same thing. So if I go for a four-course supper, we're expecting one dish after another. When they refer to courses, they mean spreads like mini buffets. So he comes in, most of it's there. There's a little bit of pomp and ceremony. He sits down. A, uh, two people come up with a bowl of water, properly scented with roses. He washes his hands. Somebody else hands him a napkin. There we are. We get to see that the king is clean and tidy. Uh, then someone brings a piece of meat up and rather than it being sliced on the table because he's king, they go through, like you do in some older school restaurants, they carve it all for him so that it gets to be uh, put down. If, if he is eating and there are others eating outside, so he might be in this small uh, chamber, but the rest of the great hall is all eating. One of the things he can do is pick something and pass it down. So he's showing his... Um, 
his largesse, his, um, his majesty, look how good I am. Now, what I reckon is he sits down really quickly, like you and I would, thinks, I don't really fancy that pie, I'll send it down to the Duke of Buckingham. <laughs> <laughs> so they're in other rooms, are they? It's like lesser dining yep, yep. rooms. A lot of them are in other rooms, in other, other parts of the hall. Sometimes he dines in company. It's, it's all a, a bit of a, a mismatch. I mean, it is a huge festival going on, or something like New Makes Year. Makes me wonder if there, was a, if there was a dish... But if you you saw it coming your way, you thought, okay, my time's my time's up. Especially in Henry's time, yeah. If you get me the apricot pudding or whatever, you know, whatever with with something unusual, and you think, oh no, no, this oh, is he it. Hates me. Oh, this is it. Yeah, time yeah. to get the soldiers together and close the front door and wait. Well, what's what's really good, of course, is if um, James is now taken on the role of the Duke of Buckingham, has just been past the apricot tart. Because you're a duke, you can point at it and have it passed down to your next And it goes all the way down the hall. And then there's some guy who works in the boiling house who goes, wow, apricot. It's <laughs> <laughs> fabulous. Just the idea of pass the parcel with food you don't particularly like. And it's food as, like you say, though, it's food as power as well. It's, it's the gift. Mm. It's gifting it. It's eating it to show off. It's eat, I mean, I'd, I'd be, I'd be curious. I mean, I know this is probably a very difficult thing to know, and it comes down to more kind of your instinct rather than what was probably written down. But the idea of what what he actually liked to eat versus the the the, the sort of the grandiose displays of what could be there is probably different, right? Imagine probably like yeah. it's very hard, and and we'd love to know more. Um, we get all of these lists of dishes, and when they have the big feast, we get the fact that there's. Uh, each each course has got six or seven roasts in, and all these pies. There, there are a lot more vegetables than people realise. They're put in as a, as a as side dishes, but they don't tend to get written about that much. In the same way that again, I keep coming back to restaurants, but that's our our road into this. If you pick uh, slow roast beef, uh, pork collar or something, it doesn't always tell you, but it comes with mashed potato, vegetables. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. So yeah. just because something says that they're having all these roasts that's the show-off part so they write that down but there's there's dishes of cabbages there's dishes of um, uh, mushrooms all sorts of veg around as well salads do they have carrots do they have carrots then yeah they're funny little things they they haven't really established themselves with orange yet they're still coming in the wide variety of colors that you can now get in organic um, uh, shops they they range from white through yellow through orange into sort of dark red and purple they're quite fun, the early carrot. And like you said, no potatoes. <laughs> no potatoes. Now, the bit that's difficult to um, to imagine is, is I say, what, what, you're saying, what, what do we know he ate? There are a few things he supposedly liked, but we've got to remember, this is before his trouble time. We only know him as the fat guy that killed him. Forget <laughs> him. Let's go back to the young, six foot three, 34-inch waist Henry that we know about when he was young, with half of Europe going, woof. So, completely different guy. He's out to impress. What does he like? Well, I'm afraid he's a guy. All the we ever got about what he liked is he seems to like what his new girlfriend likes. Oh, so, the new, <laughs> so the new girlfriend likes strawberries. Suddenly there's strawberry tart on the table the whole time. The new girlfriend likes artichokes. Wham. So he's just a guy, I'm afraid. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> it's isn't not it? very deep. Well, you said they're still, very, they're still the same. It's... So when you were rummaging through these cookbooks and things, mm-hmm. I'm guessing from my experience exploring some of these with you over the years, is they were written very differently, right? To like to now, uh, mm-hmm. how how differently and how easy is it to interpret what they're telling you? Uh, 
not very. <laughs> That's good because <laughs> that means people pay me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> they are written in Middle English, which is a slightly different language, but like any language, you can learn it. Um, and the English parts that we recognise stand out very easily. So you can you can pick out you know four out of five words. Uh, it, there's a way of writing which changes. Uh, the, the English has quite a lot of German still in it, a Germanic language English is. It has bits of archaic, older uh, older words. Some of it is north-south divide. It is just a matter of, of learning how to read these. The biggest problem, if I was to write it out in modern English for you, is it only just tells you what to do. Now, any of our chefs out there who are French trained, they will know something called the Repertoire de Cuisine, which is a small A5 book that you tend to get when you're learning French cookery. It is the size of a cheap paperback. It's very thin. It's got about 5,000 recipes in it because none of them tell you how to do any of it because you're a cook. <laughs> and most of my... So it'll just tell you, say, tell you, take pastry, do this, add this, put this inside, bake it. Because they are books for cooks. And this is how most cookery books up until the Victorians were written. They were not written to inspire you, the general public, to have a go. They were books for cooks. And so I don't know how many you're cooking for, Jay. So why am I going to tell you how much to put in there? Yeah. You might be cooking for five or 50. You're a cook. I'll tell you, make pastry. Make it into a case. They tend to use the word coffin. That can confuse. Make it into a <laughs> coffin and fill it with minced meal, minced pork, raisin, and so on. I'll just tell you what goes in there. And then... Um, the, the one that amuses everyone, it says cook until done. Well, that sounds a bit stupid <laughs> apart from, well, you know, your oven, it's wood fired. I can't tell you when it's done, you know, when it's done, cook it till it's finished. And then it'll say serve hot, serve with the sauce and so on. So they are difficult to interpret from the language point of view, but you also have to know what you're doing. Mm. <laughs> so who would buy or, or get hold of these books? Oh, who would, who would end up with a uh, million dollar question? We still don't know. I can't answer that, and I was, I was actually part of a conversation only the other week with some other historic cooks. Books are a very valuable item at the time we're talking about, and they remain so for a good couple of hundred years. People want them in their libraries. Are these cookbooks simply written to fill libraries and never went near a cook? We don't know. I have to admit that if you just engaged a new chef and went downstairs, even today, so if you've got a really nice house in London, you think, I could chef let's get him in and if you walk straight down with a cookbook and said here's what i here's how i like you to cook you are going to get some words back because <laughs> <laughs> that's not how it works so i i really don't know um certainly the centuries later 100 200 years later it looks like it's what you do at the end of your working life as a cook so your big leave to the world is here's my book here's how i cooked I'm not sure who's reading it, but that's one. And certainly, once you get up to the 1700s, the forward has to tell the whole world how you're better than anyone else. Well, it sounds like a modern cookbook. It's kind of a legacy. It's a legacy piece. It's sort of shouting to the world, "Aren't I good?" I mean, that's that's it. It's you know hidden in the idea of giving us recipes, but it's really saying, "Aren't I brilliant?" So when yeah. you, when you were exploring all this, what um. What did you find challenging to cook? What raised your eyebrows? What what things piqued your curiosity over the years? Well, the first thing was were, was working out why some of the simpler dishes, I'll come to some complicated ones, remember, the, the simpler ones turn out to be more than you think. Now, one of the things we can say, we'll, we'll stick with old Edward Gates. There's the, there's the big man sitting down to dinner. 
virtually every day there's roast beef on the table. Now, we like roast beef. We like roast beef on a Sunday. Why has he got roast beef there every day? It's because most of the world can't afford fresh meat every day. Oh. So suddenly that dish isn't just nice. I like roast beef. But this is a man having beef every day. He sat there going, look at me. I can afford a cow. I'm feeding my court with beef. We have the lists of what he fed his 500 employees. We know what the people were getting. You've got guys whose job it is to basically tend a fire down in something called the boiling house. They're keeping, they're just keeping boiling pots going. They're pretty low down. They sit down to dinner of to roast or boiled beef and roast or boiled, boiled mutton every day with some bread and cheese. They are getting luxury food because they work for the king. Everything about the items that are going there. So you're sat down, there's a slice of roast beef. Nice. It was customary to serve two or three sauces on the side. Back to choice here. I don't put the sauce on for you. I let Jay choose his, James choose his. Everyone gets what they want. So there's a little bowl of ginger sauce next to it. That's quite nice, ginger and beef. That ginger has come on a ship from China. Oh, All yeah. that way. Yeah. Not from a corner store. Every item. So we have to unpick these. There's a, there's a little um, delicacy. It's just meant to be a mouth cleanser, uh, like we'd use a sorbet today. And it's called lemon salad. And it just tells you to finely, so finely slice lemons, they're like paper. Cut them really fine. Lay them in a dish. Sprinkle them with sugar. Come back about 10 minutes later. Keep doing that five or six times until they're glistening. And then just lay them on the table. And you take this little sweet sour piece. It's so thin, it almost melts in your mouth. And you think, oh, that's quite nice. Then you have to sit back and think, okay, this is the 16th century. Lemons only come from the Mediterranean on a ship three weeks wow sugar comes from persia it's iranian it has to be refined in antwerp and get everything about that dish is caviar yeah and it sounds so simple as well it sounds it sounds nice but it sounds mm. and then you realize that this is the same as being what white truffles with caviar on it or something like exactly, that yeah and also i mean i'm getting the sense that these cooks at this time were just as creative and exotic and and, and mm-hmm. imaginative and inventive as, as cooks are today. We get we our, our impression is that the past is full of backward thinking. You know, we had less less imagination for some reason. But I'm I'm hearing of a modern thought here. I mean, I, are these recipe books full of you know really quite exciting creative things as well? Oh, there's some quirky stuff. I mean, we're talking about we've, we've talked about simple things, which where you just look at it and look at the the fact that it's come from a long, long way away. Um, the chefs like to play. All chefs like to play today. That's you know they're artists as well. They have the temperament of an artist usually. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, the so if you've got a buffet, you've got room to play because all that food's on the table. Now, something we haven't mentioned is that the division between sweet and savoury, that sweet calls at the end, hasn't quite happened yet. So most of, the, most of those courses have a little bit of a mix. There might be a bias towards sweet towards the end if you've got a three-course meal, but they will always have sweet and savoury. Mm-hmm. Right, so I'm chef, and I'm thinking, right, I've got James and Jay coming, and he's gonna, I'm going to put out all these different things. What can I put on the table to sort of fool them? How can I play with them in a culinary way? This sounds horribly modern. It is, but it's never been any different. Um, so I think, oh, okay. Now, there's a nice dish which is made of lamb, which is a Tudor one, where they tell you to basically make a lamb meatball, some onions, some fruit, egg, uh, mix an egg in. So we're heading down to a lamb burger or lamb kofta. Yeah. But mm. it tells you, it tells you, yeah, before you put them in the dish to bake them, 
shape them up so they look like pears. Oh, brilliant. Bake them standing up so that they get a little bit of colour on them. And then to serve them, put a little sage leaf in the top. And then you're sat there, you're expecting sweet and savoury. And so you just sort of glance across the table. Now, I'm not sure whether the diners were educated enough to think, oh, I wonder what that is, or whether do you just ignore them? Do you think, oh, I don't want a pear, I want something else. And you've just missed out on the on the veal meatballs. Uh, you get all sorts of, of playful ideas like that, um, especially once you get into the sweets. Mm. Once you get into the sweet stuff, they start playing. And now, was sugar a luxury then? Was sugar? Oh, yes. A, yeah. yeah, yeah. it is still only being produced in the uh, sort of area of Persia, so Iran, Iraq area. Um, it's very heavily controlled. The sugar cane, is, there's no beet sugar until the 18th century. Um, so the cane is being cooked in its horrible job, cooked in these molds to produce crystallized sugar. Most of it is coming up into the low countries and then slowly heading into Britain. You're, you're paying a lot of money yeah, for it. Yeah. It slowly cheapens, but it's never cheap. So uh, mm. it, the price comes down, uh, sadly, when we start realizing we can grow it on colonies. But it still remains um, an expensive item. And so there might not be a sweet course, but if you've got the cash to have a palace, then you'll build something called a banqueting house. If you go to London, we still have the banqueting house in Whitehall, the last part of Whitehall Palace. If you go to Hampton Court, out in the grounds is the banqueting house. If you go to a lot of stately homes, if they're of that era, you'll find there's a building off to one side, which is the banqueting house. Now, we've taken the word banquet now to mean a big meal. Yeah. But originally, it more often meant a small, sweet meal. So we've all gone for a feast. All of us are doing quite well. And the king stands up and, in a prearranged way, because they've already worked it out, invites you and uh, James, and not me, because I've been snubbed this week, <laughs> to join them for the banquet. And so everyone else is finished and we all go back to work and a small number of people retire to this much more private space, this smaller building. The pudding now, room. The smoking room. The pudding room. room. Yeah, wow. Now, on a, on a political uh, um, point of view, this is the thing. I mean, come on. I, you're now getting an intimate meeting with the rule of a country. So it's all about politics. Being with about the king. It. I mean, come on. You yes. have a better chance to hobnob. <laughs> but this is where your chefs can play. Because the banqueting room is already laid out. It's all ready for you to walk in. It is the Christmas table. They've, they've got it all ready. And it's one of the places they can play and fool. Because um, they'd already learned by the end of the Middle Ages how to cast sugar. Oh, so wow. they're using wooden, a plaster, and possibly some metal, some pewter moulds, to pour liquid sugar in. So it mm. sets. With the wooden ones, you have to soak them in water, dry them. So they're, they're, you look at the table, and you'll see the sweets at first. So there'll be little bit. They don't look much more than humbugs, because if sugar's so expensive, yeah. then you don't. So there's little comfits, and uh, which are uh, sugar-covered seeds, little pieces of barley sugar, little twisted sweets. So you just glance at that. Then you start looking at the table more carefully, and you think, hang on, that bowl of fruit, they're a bit shiny. Those apples, pears, and oranges are actually cast sugar and hollow. Oh, and they've been fabulous. painted on the air. Wow. wow. How did you do that? And the king's going, you know, I've got these guys. And yeah. <laughs> then, then you look a little bit more carefully and you think, hang on. Because if you mix sugar with egg white and a, veg a gum, a tree gum, we're used to gum Arabic nowadays. There's another one called gum tragicanth, which is a another tree resin. 
they use that. It makes sugar into a hard paste that will set very hard yeah. once you leave. It's soft to work, and then it sets really hard. I think the nearest modern equivalent is royal icing. Same sort of. Oh, okay, sort of right. Idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you've looked at your, you've realised that there's sweets on the table, yada, 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 yada. You've seen yet another cast lemon. You saw one of those <laughs> when you were when you were over in Castile. Yeah, they do that. Then you realise that the dish that it's in is sugar. Oh wow! And uh, one of the banquets they talk about was the table was strewn with playing cards just to make it look cool. So there's all these cards around. Look a little bit more carefully. They're all edible. Each wow. one is a playing card that you can pick up. Eat, take away. This do is so you much like. more playful than I would ever have imagined. This is. This um, feels like fine dining today. You know, this is. Incredible. Oh, it is. It is. It's this, and this is the very highest. Tip. This is a man saying, "I've got people who've been working for days to make." And you look again at your table and realise the cup you're going to drink your sweet wine out of is a sugar cup. <laughs> we actually made those years ago. We did them for one of the millennials. So we cast sugar goblets. Each one had a Tudor rose on the front side of the crest. And you drank sweet wine from them. The wine gets a little sweeter as you drink it. And then to, at the end, if you want, you could just chill on the cup. Was it nice? Was it good? Did it work? It was sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine any of these jokes had particularly great teeth today. <laughs> uh, it, it will have started to, uh, to to get to the teeth. And again, it, it's, you, you had to be able to afford to have, uh, have bad teeth, really. Well, so um, were, they, were these cooks... English then? Was there English? Uh, or were the they... majority, but no, we happen to know that uh, Henry VIII did have a French cook. And that confuses people. Um, when you find out that uh, one of his cooks, his private cooks, was a Frenchman, everyone immediately goes to French cookery mm. and thinks of it as that. No, it's it's actually a shame that he was a Frenchman, not an Italian or a German. Or it doesn't really matter what nationality he was. When you look at the cookbooks of that era, they're very much pan-European. The age of French cookery and the rise of French cookery is 200 years off. That's all mm. going to come later with a whole other story for another day. <laughs> well, on that front, we are we are actually getting close to running out of time Ooh. in our Tudor experience. But I do remember when we spoke before, you suggested there was a there was the sort of pinnacle mm. ban banquet that you had some details of. Do, I've, do I've got take to us there. Right. I've just described how after a feast, you get invited to the banquet. Right. What's the top one? I, and luckily for us, it's written down. This is in 1520. So the king is pretty good. He's still in his prime. And a man called Charles, who's the Duke of Burgundy, has not long been made the Holy Roman Emperor. So he is the top man. It's like... It's not it, bad, is it? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like having you wanting the president of America to be first visit. You want this guy over in your country to show you your friends. So they get him over here. King meets him at Dover along with the famous Cardinal Wolsey. It's all great. They go around for a bit, perhaps, of course. What they want to do is show off for his last night. So it's the last night of his three-week tour. And the king says, oh, I've sorted this banquet out for you. I know we've had a bit of supper. Come down to Whitehall. So they walk down to Whitehall. And I've, uh, I've got a little surprise for you. And what they've built, and it so impressed the ambassador for Venice, he wrote it down. So you'll have to indulge me for a moment while I tell you what he saw. He said there was a building that had been completely constructed from wood, like a large circle, but with 16 flat sides. The nearest I can think of is the Globe Theatre. Mm. This thing oh, looked wow. like oh, the God, Globe Theatre. Wow. Be, yes. Well, he says um, it was approximately 24 metres in diameter. If you walked around it, it was 75 metres, and he estimates it at at least 15 metres high. It's as big as the Globe. That's crazy. One side of it had an entrance corridor, so it had a long corridor you could walk down. 
again, at least 10 metres long and probably five high, is that as we entered, there were three big statues like giants, one of King Arthur, one of Hercules, and next to him, an English soldier. So you're, you're doing a bit of propaganda. So you walked past those. As you walked past those, you saw a huge red dragon and a black eagle. So one's Henry, one's the Duke of Burgundy. That was holding their arms. You walked past that, and then you went under a load of statues of kings in gold. And then finally, under a statue of the God of Love, <laughs> uh, surmounted by two, two different um, soldiers either side. Then you went into the room. That was all laid with tables. So you're going to eat at the bottom there. There were tables everywhere, central table for the two kings. Then on one side was what we would call a, they call it a buffet. So basically it's a load of uh, shelves, all covered in gold plates and cups. Absolutely. The sort of thing you see in Windsor Castle, this yeah. bank of gold. So look at this. Oh, there's the bank account. He's going, yeah, it's not bad, is it? <laughs> then there were tiers all the way up, at about six metres each, each hung with cloths. And there were people there. There was musicians in the first tier, so you call the trumpet, trumpets and all that lot. And then there were guests invited to watch the kings die. So they're all in the nexus. It's like now suddenly it's the last, last night of the props. There's all these people <laughs> around. It's like, once you got to the top tier, they had embroidered the countryside on a tapestry. So there oh, were wow. um, mountains and hills and streams all in it. And then the central pole of this thing had a, a, a central beam, hung a ceiling cloth, that was painted dark blue with gold stars. We're going into Hogwarts here. This is crazy. This is what we got. So it was absolutely massive. There were three globes hanging from the ceiling, which are supposed to be celestial bodies. It just goes on and on and on. Do we know what was served at it? No. Because the night before it happened, the roof blew off in a gale and they went there inside. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Can you imagine the party planner? Who's well, I'm just saying, oh. yeah. Also, or just some poor, some bloke down in Chiswick, this giant yeah. celestial blanket sort of, you know, yeah. washes up. I can, I, can, I can see a man clutching a very, a very disappointing invoice thinking, well, that's that then. <laughs> yeah, because you ain't getting paid for that. Yeah. Some guy with a trumpet going, is he coming yet? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, how do I how do I say this? Uh, no, <laughs> no. But also, that does explain the. I mean, the money they spent on that is phenomenal, and to just have it not be a problem, they just went net and bite all the palace instead. So they probably did get all the wonderful dishes that were cooked for. We don't know what they are, but that building was just a one-off marquee. That's all it was. That is fabulous. Well, I mean. Okay, so here comes the segue. Brace yourselves. Mark, that was joyous, by the way, delving back into Tudor times. And I'm hoping you might be able to drag out a, a gadget from this. Because each week what we do is mm -hmm. we have people uh, writing in to put in their gadgets into our Hall of Infamy. They can be good or bad or useless. And then you, if you put them in and you've owned them, then you get them uh, named after you. And this, uh, one of the ones we've had written in uh, is from someone on Instagram that basically said, this is my daughter Amy's favourite gadget in the kitchen. Now, we found out Amy's five, by the way. Um, so this is very impressive that her favourite gadget is an avocado knife with a metal bit to lift the pip out and a yellow kiwi spife, which is a spoon and a knife. And it's really quite impressive. And the fact that she has a special uh, kiwi Ooh. 
kiwi knife spoon thing. It, it, it's the, the joyous thing about a good gadget is you never realised you needed it until you had it, and suddenly I realised kiwis are a bugger to eat. So uh, that's fabulous. So uh, so Amy owns that now. That's going to be uh, Amy's kiwi spife. Um, Mark, in terms of a gadget, are you going the good or the bad or the useless? Oh, I'm going down the bad. Yeah, because it's it's been sat in the back of my drawer because it was inherited from my mother. And I'm hoping, as a historian, we realise that the gadgets that survive are the ones you don't use. So my favourite knife, my favourite gadget, because it does everything, I will sharpen away as the years go on. And eventually it'll get to this tiny little spike and get thrown away. But sat at the back of my drawer in plastic, impervious to the ravages of time. (laughs) So the archaeologists in the future will find this thing that looks like a ruler that I think my mother got free from a cookery magazine that allows you to measure pasta out. You push spaghetti through the different holes for one person, two person, three person. No one has ever used one. They're brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) I love the idea that they know know exactly how many people. This is for three people, no more or no less than this. (laughs) And and in 500 years' time, Mark's right, there'll be a podcast where we'll be discussing how God, in in the 21st century, they used to measure pasta. (laughs) They were extraordinary times. All of them, everybody on Earth. Before the robots took over, it was great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they rash- They strictly rationed pasta. Is they what did. they'll be looking yeah. at back then. Oh, wonderful! So, uh, Mark, you now, you now in our in our hall of infamy own the pasta, pasta measuring the, the pasta ruler, ruler that uh, sorts nothing out in your life. <laughs> <laughs> now, briefly, because we are running out of time, but I wanted to open this up to the floor for both of you because I'm really curious about it. Andy Rob emailed in. Hello, Andy. Um, he said, uh, "Dear chaps, here's some thoughts I've been having over the last few months." Uh, and he want he says, "How a food." trends set by whom and why does one food apparently sit higher than the other on the sort of got to buy it uh, spectrum how do trends appear in cooking he's got cookbooks that are apparently out of date because of the way things have moved on so why is this what makes things a trend or trendy in domestic and professional kitchens so i'm curious because obviously james you've made very many tv food shows over the years and probably propagated lots of these trends and mark obviously your 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 view of history shows you should be able to see the trends uh, come and go so mark first of all where do trends come from well if i could predict the next trend you'd be hearing me from the bahamas wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I um i don't know i got a feeling there's a bit of luck in it as well and we talk about media as if it's brand new but everything I've been talking about in the last half hour is about that everyone looked up through their society to those in charge of themselves and ability and so on. Uh, and so they just want, they want what they have. And it could be random. Um, there, there was a lovely um, few years in the late 1630s, 70s, actually, when no one could move for nutmegs. The price of nutmegs went through the roof. You could, um, you could earn a fortune if you invested in a nutmeg ship. Because for some reason, this exotic little nut from all the way from China was the go-to. It was the, the thing to have. And then I presume within seconds, one man is sat on the quayside in, uh, in Essex <laughs> just after the bubbles burst, <laughs> realising that he's got a ship full of the nutmeg bubble, marbles. Nutmeg. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, and that happens. It, it goes up and down. I don't know. James, can, 
Can well, you, I think, I think, I think you, well, I think you touched on it. I think you're right. I think people are influenced by whoever is influencing them. And these days, influencers are everywhere. So, you know, we're all looking at different sources to, to be influenced by. And some of them stick because I think it can be novel for a short period of time, but they have to also be useful and good if they're food items. They've got to taste mm. good as much. So I think good food is good food, So and it sticks around. So once you've discovered that, they stick, and those things might last forever. I'm not saying I can predict what trends would will keep going for, for a long period of time, but I think first and foremost, you've got to reach for people, and then it's got to be accessible to them, and then it's got to be a good thing for it to become a long-term trend. And that's why certain cookbooks fall out of favour for, for me. You know, there are certain styles of cooking but no no longer you know fulfill a, a need in my life to, to cook you know the, the sort of the elder sort of icons of food like Delia still have parts of the, the cooking repertoire that I fall back into but there are some things already that I think oh I just this just this doesn't fit I just can't be it doesn't it's not what I want today tomorrow and so it falls away and I think that happens with individual items too that happens with certain foods when they're new everyone wants to try them and they stick around because they're good you know, and, and when you talk about Henry, I always think of Henry as being the, the first kind of, I, I might be wrong, but, you know, the first British food influencer, you know, who, who had the power to influence his people. But also he was looking elsewhere. I mean, he, 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 he gathered things from abroad, as far as I'm aware, Martin, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the kind of stone fruit trees of southern England were planted because Henry liked peaches, pears, apricots, apples, yeah. all this stuff, because he tried them. Someone had brought them back on a ship for whatever reason or part of a, an ambassadorial uh, political... Relate, and he thought, I'll have that, thanks. And, <laughs> and he would plant them because he liked to have them around. And, and then the people, I guess, like Mark was describing, see the king's table... And then they think, oh, well, if I can get hold of one of those, I'll be like the king and I'll have a, a peach on my table, you know, and I might not have it every day, but if I can, I would. So, you know, these things start to yeah. grow and everybody wants one because it's it's a trend suddenly. So I think they come, as Mark said, like they, they come out of the wind, these trends, and I don't think you can mm. always predict them. Sometimes you can see them coming. Sometimes you can see a new territory being explored, you know, Hong Kong street food, you know, Korean, yeah. you know, fried chicken, those those weird ice cream rolls that dominate my Instagram feed where people <laughs> seem to just chop away and roll it up. But you know that we haven't got them everywhere in London yet, but I bet they're already here. And if, yeah. if they're good, which I've never tried one, then they will be everywhere. You know, if they're not so good, you'll probably have to go to East London to go and get one. <laughs> you know and, and and that's for me how it happens and it's very hard to predict look at that devil was Prada. i always think of devil wears prada and that fashion speech she has where she's sort of the the the, the, the young girl's working for her and looking down her nose a bit at this sort of highfalutin fashion with their very strange designs and she says to her do you think what you're wearing because she's just wearing normal jeans and a t-shirt do you think that is accidental she's like no it's not because someone has gone out and find the finest silk and created this really unusual color which they found and they've put it on the catwalks of france and eventually that sort of seeped its way down to cna or wherever you've got this from and i think some of it does come from the realms of of the chefs of the hestons of this world and other chefs out there who are basically could perpetually fascinated just like you said with henry's chef trying to find something new something different something that can wow the world and will pique their curiosity so they may make the the the, the crazy sea urchin foie gras nonsense 
But eventually, if it's good, like you said, James, yeah. that will trickle its way down. So we Absolutely. then get the pot noodle version on the high street. And I think well, we end up with a, the part of a garnish. Like, I mean, I think when you're talking, I was thinking, of course, about sriracha sauce, which about four years yeah. ago I'd never heard of. And I saw it somewhere on television, Rick Stein or something, used it on a dressing for a fish taco. And I you know, tried one. I thought it's the everything else great you know the fish for taco i get but that sauce i've never had in it what what is it you look at it you go that looks amazing it's vibrant red with a little green top i want some where do i get it you start buying and i'm not alone i'm not unique i mean if i like it someone else likes it someone at tesco's likes it and they're buying it and suddenly boff oh my god everywhere katsu sauce Jesus. Yep. I mean, that is literally on everything now. I mean, it's gorgeous, which is great. I love katsu sauce. But it's crisps, yeah. baguettes, sort of katsu baguette today. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, Absolutely. I like, I, sometimes I, uh, myself and the other few food historians that are around, we get to giggle when a new trend comes along and we know it's an old one. I, I like those ones. <laughs> I think my favourite one in the recent past is the goji berry. Do you remember oh, for yeah. a while? Yes, you yeah. could not, super food, you, super you food. You could not move for that. No, I like them, but uh, they are actually grow all over Europe. In the past, we called them wolfberries, and they grow quite uh, copiously up the A1. You didn't have to spend 15 quid on a bag. <laughs> <in the lab. laughs> you just go and get one up there. <laughs> but sometimes that's true. Sometimes it is just marketing. Sometimes yeah. there are already good things out there that could trend. But you change their name and then they they burst and they become huge. Yeah. But actually, if you know in their old incarnation, no one would touch them. They often <laughs> do this. I always think of the old fish and chip shops as your, as your classic marketeers of, of unpleasant things. You know, we've talked to this before. <laughs> Some of those fish that you're eating, rock salmon, rock cod, anything with rock in front of it is the <laughs> ugliest looking beast yeah. you've ever seen. But once you take a chunk of its flesh out and cover it in batter, it's delicious. But you'd never eat it if they called it dogfish, no. or wolffish, <laughs> or, or no. you know what all these kind of things and it is some of it's about marketing and i think you know if you get that bit right too and you you know as you say you rebrand it and you give it a little twist then suddenly you know you can open up a market that was you know maybe not as big or as prevalent as it could have been before and suddenly yes you know again it's about accessibility then for me it's then about suppliers you know you opportunist entrepreneurial types you know finding a way to get this thing as to as many people as quickly as possible and then the trend spreads you know and then it sticks around for a bit longer so just to get your sugar tankards you must go to the journey to the center of food website where we're going to be trying to get that trend going absolutely uh, mark thank you ever so much for taking us sure. back in time and now what we can also do is we can do uh, a sizzle as we call it in the tv world a trailer coming up next week the return of mark meltonville yes this is not a one-parter this is a two-parter uh next week you're going to be coming back and you're going to be talking about the essential lifeblood to britain the history of it the future of it uh mark give us a a tiny taster what are we talking about next week well uh, for the last few years through sheer accidents i've been involved in a lot of projects that look at the history of beer yeah that's a good thing the history and the future of our most loved drink next week is a beer special so come back next week but for this week mark we hugely appreciate you coming board it's always a delight hanging out Thank with you. you and hearing your amazing things and yeah. james until next week get your tankard ready we're going to have some beer oh wonderful i do like a beer <laughs>